But we're going to turn to Psalm 2. It's a psalm that is referenced at least twice in the New Testament. And so it is a very important psalm. And in the Bible that I use that provides headings for some of the psalms that are the headings not being inspired, strikingly enough, the heading for this psalm is Coronation of the Lord's Anointed. So that is the second psalm. Beginning at verse 1, let us hear the word of God. Why do the heathen rage and the people Imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen. It is the word of the living God. And may the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his word for his name's sake. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Now, our Father, we have come to this central part of Protestant worship. The declaration, the proclamation of thy holy word. We pray, O Lord, for the grace to hear thy word tonight. We thank thee for the infallibility of this book, that the absolute authority of it is beyond challenge. So we rejoice tonight that the words we have heard are the words that have come from thee. Now, Father, we pray as we are to meditate upon them, We ask that thy spirit, the true author of the word, will take up this word and apply it powerfully to every soul. O Lord, grant me the grace that is needed 
for the proclamation of thy word, for the exaltation of thine only begotten Son. Hear our cry, we pray. Let thy word ring in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The second psalm expounds the long war between God and the devil and declares the war's certain outcome. The inspired psalmist described the response in the world toward the message of salvation and its mediator. The psalmist, as a prophet, saw the age between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ as full of spiritual turmoil and seething hatred toward God, his word, and his Christ. The war that has been unfolding from the day of the Garden of Eden. The war is between truth and error, heaven and hell, Christ and Antichrist. In its historic context, the second psalm expounded the resentment that the neighbors of David's kingdom harbored toward his reign and especially toward his presumption in their mind to rule in the name of God. Those nations, many of which David conquered in battle, resisted him, resisted the symbols of his sovereignty, and resolved to overthrow his rule. Now, they all failed, of course. But the psalm is more than just a commentary on history. It is prophetic because it speaks of God's Son and God's King. Against the rule of Christ, the nations of the world conspire. Against the rule of Christ, the rulers of the world exert all their energies. They want freedom from the restrictions of Christ's government and from the idea that only by grace is their salvation from hell. The rulers of the world fume against the gospel message and work against all who proclaim it. The language at the opening of the second psalm is the language of rebellion. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. It's the language of refusal and contempt. We hear an echo of it in 
one of the parables that our Lord told, as recorded in the Gospels, where people said, we will not have this man to rule over us. There is only one answer from Christ to this rebellion, to this revolt against him. And we learn in this psalm that it is laughter. Some commentators through the centuries tried to soften the edges of the psalm. They weren't comfortable with the idea that God laughs at people. But the contrast between verses 3 and 4 could not be starker. Because they say in verse 3, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And then without even the word but, we find the statement in verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. So while they're going about with all of their counsels and their plans, God is sitting in the heavens. And he laughs. So when the princes take counsel to cast away the cords of Christ's government from them, the one who reigns laughs. That is the revolt of these people is so pathetic that ridicule is the only response. Christ employs the rod of iron to smash the conspiracy to pieces. This psalm is about the king whom God has installed. As we read in verse 6, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And this psalm shows the king reigning in conquest over rebellion. And that's the theme I want to dwell upon this evening, reigning in conquest over rebellion. The heathen rage. Perversion is on the march as we sit here this evening, and it finds powerful allies in the halls of power, including, I am sad to say, at the head of our national government. The resolve to stamp out every voice that defends truth and uprightness is ultimately the desire to pull Christ from his throne. And let there be no mistake, that is what the issue is. You may have read that last week, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz signed a bill into law that will enable minors, and that's legal jargon for children, from other states to receive what he called gender-affirming care in Minnesota, without notification to the parents of those children. The care in question includes the use of drugs and surgical mutilation to help a child make the transition from one gender to another. This is rage against Christ. 
And the campaign of rage against the rule of Christ grows more deadly. There is scorn and contempt against the Lord and against his anointed. In London yesterday, and you'd have to be living under a rock not to know this, the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla provided an exercise in the maintenance of deference to the traditions of defending the Protestant Reformed faith while recognizing the involvement of those who despise that faith, who despise Christ and his word. Now, I have to say, I was very glad that the king had to recite that legally prescribed oath that he would defend the Protestant Reformed faith, that even in such a godless country as the United Kingdom, there is still at least a little scrap left of the truth for which so many gave their lives. So I was glad to hear that. But in that service, the media of the world made a big point of the fact that there were Muslims and Jews and Roman Catholics and who knows what else taking part in that service. Part of what we read about in Psalm 2, the conspiracy against the rule of Christ. History reveals, however, that the heathen who rise against Christ, and it has been this way in every generation, will feel Christ's wrath against them. Whatever the situation appears to be in the world then, you may rest assured tonight that God is in heaven and he is reigning. It is an important message. The world, as we look at it, has a very dark aspect. Things such as I mentioned that have taken place last week in Minnesota are not isolated to Minnesota. But I'm telling you tonight that God's purposes will prevail. And here is the message of the second psalm. The message of this psalm is that there's only one safe response to what the Lord has done, and that is to submit to the king. Not King Charles III, but the king of kings. I want us to consider this evening three leading features of the psalm. And the first of them strikes us immediately, the world's fury. The world's fury. The language of the first verse of the psalm reflects the word rage. Why do the heathen rage? Now the English word rage comes almost directly from the Hebrew word, and it's a Hebrew word that means what its sound suggests. Those who 
have to study literature and literary devices, probably come into contact with the concept of onomatopoeia, which is uh, a literary device where a word sounds like its meaning. The word buzz, for example, is a word that means what it sounds like. And this word is much like that. In English, rage is one of those words that we don't have to ponder what it means. We hear its meaning, rage. The heathen, rage. It is envy and hatred. We see it on display in the New Testament in two passages in the Acts. First of all, in Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, the beginning of the chapter, verse 5 and 6. But the Jews which believed not, that is, there were some in Thessalonica that believed, but the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. They caused a riot. They caused an uproar. Why? Because they did not like that which the apostles had preached and that which so many believed. Turn over a page to chapter 19 in Acts, and we see it again. In verse 28, And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. Here is the rage of the heathen. Now let us not delude ourselves and pretend that this kind of fury has evaporated. We have now religious liberty and religious toleration. If you follow what's going on in the world around you, you know that that is not the case. We could go to areas of the world tonight where to preach what we preach, to believe what we believe would subject us not only to the harshest ridicule, but also to physical suffering and even death. The people of the earth set themselves, we learn in verse 1, to create vanities, or verse 2, to create vanities. They imagine that they can refuse the rule of Christ with impunity. They imagine that if they don't believe the Bible, the Bible has no authority over them. You think that this philosophy is foreign to us? I'm sure that some of you at least have heard somebody say, well, 
If you believe the Bible, then it's, it's for you, but it's not for me. As though the Bible has no authority if you don't believe it. There are people who imagine the gospel message is a message for weaklings and children, old people. I resent it, by the way, that very idea. The people of whom we read in this psalm are not ambivalent. They are intense. They are full of fury against Christ and those who proclaim Christ's message. And the number of such people in the world today increases rapidly. We've been talking about it a lot lately at home that there used to be a time when people would be undercover or to use the vernacular, they would be in the closet. They're not in the closet anymore. And if you don't endorse and support their views, they become enraged against you. The fury inspires the worst kind of conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy of political action groups. It's a conspiracy, we read here, among the rulers of the world. And it is against God's Son. Now there are people who think that God has somehow lost control of the world. But here we find the real conspiracy. This conspiracy dominated the corridors of power in the Roman Empire. Where's the Roman Empire now? It's gone. The kings stake out their ground. The rulers, the princes of the world sit down for their councils. And the object of their conspiracy is simple. It's the Lord and his anointed. It's God's son. And their answer to the success of the glory of Christ and his truth is to consult against Christ. Let us turn back to the Acts of the Apostles, and this time to chapter 12. The beginning of chapter 12, we read, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Here was a consultation against Christ. The council of war against the king. And when this age comes to its end, this conspiracy will break out into savage wrath. We find that in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 17. Verse 12. 
And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings, one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is the war. And what is the cause of the conspiracy? Why do they gather together? It is the idea that true freedom lies in casting off Christ. That's what I've heard many times from political leaders in recent days. We are about freedom, meaning we're casting off all restrictions. This is freedom. So they want to break the bands that hinder the full expression of their depravity. They want to legitimize those things that God has condemned, that God has proscribed. There is fury in the world. If we had to leave it there, it would be a very disheartening message. But the second psalm does not leave it there. We have here the gracious word of God. The second thing in the psalm is the Lord's sovereignty. The world's fury, but the Lord's sovereignty. The fourth verse, as we've noted, opens with a divine response and does so suddenly. He that sitteth in the heavens. Tonight we can rejoice that our God sitteth in the heavens. He is in the heavens. So that his rule does not yield to the conspiracy that the nations of the world form. A 17th century commentator wrote, so this is 400 years ago, hereby it is clearly intimated, one, that the Lord is far above all their malice and power. If nothing else encourages you, I trust that will encourage you. Two, that he seeth all their plots, looking down on all. Three, that he is of of omnipotent power and so can do with his enemies as he lists. It is the sentiment that we read in the 11th Psalm, a few pages or page over really from our text. Psalm 11. And verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. Those who have grown up under the eye, watchful eye of parents, know something about this kind of scenario. And they may wonder sometimes how it is that parents sometimes seem to know what their children are doing 
even when the children believe that what they're doing is hidden. So it is here the Lord's eye sees. We turn to Isaiah 40 and verse 22 and we find a similar perspective. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Here is God's vantage place. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is beyond the reach of human revolt. There is a majestic throne where God sits and no one can reach it. And from that place of sovereignty comes the king's response as we read here in verse 4 to the rebellion against him. It is to hold them in derision, to ridicule them. And as I said, some object that depicting God in this way makes him appear to be petty. It's all right for the ungodly to laugh at God and make him the target of their jokes, but God must not laugh at them. That would not be fair. But we have other places where the Holy Spirit describes God as laughing. Psalm 37. Verse 12. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. What day is that? That's the day of judgment. Turn to Psalm 59. Psalm 59 and verse 8. Or let's read beginning at verse 6. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For who, say they, doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. And then one final reference in this connection, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 26. Proverbs 1 and 26. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Here is the response of the one who sits in the heavens to those who scorn reproof and correction and refuse to be bound by it. 
In verse 24, because I have called and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. Sometimes that laughter appears in unusual twists to circumstances. It's another figure of speech known as irony. Pharaoh proclaimed that all the Hebrew male infants should be drowned in the river. And many were, but not all. One of those male infants grew up in Pharaoh's household and became the deliverer of God's people. That's God's laughter at Pharaoh. Those who think now that they have taken God's measure and who believe that they will not have to answer, that they can flout his law with impunity, will soon hear the laughter that comes from the throne. It's a fearful concept for those who pretend that all is well with them. But there is a final thought I would leave with you this evening, and that is the third aspect of the psalm, the people's submission. The second half of the psalm underlines God's resolve. We read in verse 6, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. There's nothing that any of the rulers of the world can do about it. God has set his king there. In verse 9, there, there are no negotiations. Instead, we read of the rod of iron that Christ will wield and will break the will and the purposes of the nations. Yes, I tell you tonight, the opponents of Christ, whatever they think, will bow to his sovereign will. One way or another, they will bow. He has a heavy scepter that overwhelms all the opposition. We read here in verse 9 of the dashing to pieces like a potter's vessel. So here's the image of a pot whose maker has crafted and fired and used it, but the potter has found flaws in it. And so because that is the case, the potter has smashed it to pieces with the potter's club. The nations will be like that potter's vessel. The king will smash them to pieces. And for the people of God in a world that has gone mad, there is great encouragement. We do not serve God in vain. We do not have to flail about in helplessness. God has set his king on the holy hill. How must you respond to him? We read of it at the end of the psalm. 
Verse 10, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Oh, that they would be wise. Hardly any are. But oh, that they would be wise. Oh, that there would be such wisdom in the highest offices of our national government. Be wise. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. What's the instruction? Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. And then kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. In the coronation yesterday in London, one of the key points was the Prince of Wales, the son of the king, swearing his allegiance to the king. And at the end of that oath, he kissed the king, his father, on the cheek. There's something far beyond that here. Kiss the son. Submit to the Son. Submit to Christ. Because when you do, you will know the comfort that He is reigning. Kiss the Son. And yet, the warning is for those who will not do so. He will be angry. And they will perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. But the psalm ends with this glorious benediction. Blessed are all they. Happy are all they. Full of bliss and contentment and joy are all they that put their trust in him. In the son who submit to the son. Because he is reigning. And he is reigning in conquest over all who rebel against him. May it be a matter of encouragement for the people of God tonight that there is cause for confidence even in the midst of darkness and perversion. Christ is on the holy hill. Christ is reigning. And his monarchy can never be overthrown. May the Lord bless his word to your hearts tonight and give you comfort for it and grant that in the days to come as you hear all the tidings of the world around you, you will remember the words of the second psalm especially these words. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise thee tonight for the truth that Christ our King is reigning. We thank thee again this evening for the truth that not all the forces of earth or hell can dislodge him from his throne. Oh, Father, we pray that tonight we may live into the benefit of which we read at the end of the psalm, 
that those who put their trust in the Son, those who kiss the Son and submit to his rule, they are blessed, they are happy. Teach us that contentment in our own souls, we pray. And for any who do not know thee, who are among those who are still in rebellion against Christ, we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt speak tonight through thy word and grant that they may come to be among those who put their trust in the Son. Hear our cry, we pray, and stamp thy word upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.